You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. Good morning. My name is Scott. I have the privilege of serving as a community group leader with my wife, Bree. And today's scripture passage is from Matthew 5, 27 through 37 from the NIV. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of a divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This is God's word. Thank you, Scott. If you brought a friend to church today, you're like, great. (laughs) If you are that friend, you're like, what have I just gotten myself into? But as we said often before, what we do at church is we go where the Bible takes us and we address the topics that it addresses and know that it is for our good. And I've learned that some of the hardest topics are some of the greatest opportunities to experience the power of the gospel. Now, no sermon can ever be exhaustive, and I know you might have some questions, particularly about divorce and situations, and I want to say before the sermon, we actually have a six-page paper on this topic, and we use it as a guiding document as the church. If you're interested in that, you have questions about that, please feel free to email the church, info at realityventura.com. We'd be happy to send that to you. Today, we want to go from the Sermon on the Mount and address the major themes and principles and understand their meaning for our lives. So let us pray together and let's ask for the Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us, and to change us as we come to the Word of God this morning. Heavenly Father, as we open your Word, would you please open our hearts particularly on these topics of sex and marriage and what it actually means to follow you in these areas. I pray that we would receive conviction where conviction is needed and comfort where comfort is needed and that we would all leave this place both with clarity but also courage to live as you have called us to live as kingdom people. Pray that you'd bring great healing and direction to us all. And for those who don't know you, I pray that they would come to know you even today and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. We pray all these things in his name. And everyone said, 
Amen. Well, Christianity's approach to sex, marriage, and commitment is remarkably clear. The two options that represent the kingdom of God in these matters are monogamous marriage between a man and a woman specifically, and singleness and celibacy. Not only are these two options equally valid, they are equally honorable. But while this is all remarkably clear in Scripture, this is highly controversial in our culture. Often the Christian sex ethic is regarded as ignorant, outdated, and suppressive. If you grew up in an area like where, where I did, in the San Francisco Bay Area, it was mocked daily. Yet we must ask, what has society put in its place? In our culture, it's the sexual revolution. But many people, including many non-Christians, have and are questioning whether or not our modern take on sexuality is actually liberating or not. One of the most fascinating books I read this year was written by a woman who is British. She is not a Christian. She's not religious at all. But she wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. It's fascinating. And here's what she says within it. She's asking all these honest and hard questions as a secular woman living in Britain. But she's asking, like, has all of this been good for us? She says, quote, sexual liberalism is misguided in not only disregarding, but actively resisting moral intuition. And yet at the same time, much like the principle of consent, intuition is too simplistic to be serviceable on its own. We may be able to broadly agree on the most outrageous examples, but one person's gut instinct won't always be the same as another person's. I can't pretend that this is an easy issue to resolve because how should we behave sexually is really just another way of asking, how should we behave? And after a millennia of effort, we are nowhere near reaching an agreement on the answer to that question. How should we behave? Well, some in the matter of sexuality derive their ethics from culture. Others derive it from their own intuition. Still others derive it from traditional culture. But the Christian's ethics are determined by Jesus Christ. And his ethic will lead you neither toward the sexual revolution nor to a traditional world, but a whole new way of being human. And that is what Jesus is teaching about in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached, where he explains our need for God And what it looks like when we are transformed by him as we enter his kingdom by faith and are changed from the inside out. So what truths does Jesus present to us and that we must take to heart on the issues of sex, marriage, and commitment? 
Well, I want us to look at this under three headings. The problem of lust, the purpose of marriage, and the power of integrity. Number one, Jesus addresses the problem of lust. And when he addresses this issue, he does so with weighty language. He says in verse 27 to 30, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Why does Jesus address the issue of lust with such gravity? Well, it is not because sex is bad. It is because sex is sacred and it is intended for marriage. If I can use a metaphor, fire is a very powerful force and you want the fire in the fireplace where it can bring warmth and comfort. But when the fire is outside of the fireplace, it brings great destruction. Jesus is warning us to that destructive. It is a destructive force outside of its intended use. And so the Bible is clear on what sexual activity is condemned. That would include premarital sex, adultery, same-sex sexual activity, polyamory, multiple partners, pornography. Let's be clear, however. Jesus is not saying that the appearance of sexual desire is bad. It's what we choose to do with it and how we direct it that can be good or bad. And here's why it's bad when we view and use it in the wrong way. Because to separate sex from its created meaning is actually to define ourselves apart from God. That is why it matters. And our culture today believes that we are defined not by a God who created us. We are defined, the culture says, by what we naturally desire. And therefore, we're trained to reject anything that would hinder us from expressing or indulging our desires. As I've said before, our culture doesn't like to prohibit anything, but the one thing that is prohibited in our culture is self-denial. Self-denial has become the new immorality. The scriptures say that we are wonderfully created by God, but also... We are fallen in sin. And so our desires can't always be trusted. I'm going to throw out some classic words here that I guarantee you will not hear in a sentence this week. Chastity. Okay, bringing chastity back. That's not a song. 
but you could make it one. (laughs) Which has to do of like reverence, all experiencing the way you use your body. That's what it means. And then there's temperance, another word you're not going to hear this week. But here's why I find the word temperance valuable. It comes from the image of taking metal, raw metal, and then hammering it into shape through fire and a tool. It's a good metaphor. Our our desires, they're, they're a mix. They're mixed together. We're created by God wonderfully. We're tainted by sin. We can't just automatically trust what comes naturally to us, as I did when I was a younger man. They need to be tempered. That's what scripture teaches. Sex outside of marriage is essentially promising with your body that which you will not follow up with, with your whole life. Ronald Rollheiser wrote a book called Holy Longing. It has a, an immense sec- section on sexuality, and in it he describes it like this. By its very nature, sex speaks of total giving, total trust, and total commitment. There is an unconditionality inherent in so intimate a sharing of one's soul. Thus, if real trust, commitment, permanency, and unconditionality are not present within the wider relationship, sex is a lie. It pretends to give a gift that it does not really give, and it asks for a gift that it cannot respectfully reciprocate. And Jesus is saying that this all begins in the heart. So what is... Lust. Where does it begin? Where does it lead? And what does it require? Well, first of all, what is lust? To be clear, lust is not sexual desire. Lust is disordered sexual desire. In fact, that's what the word means, over-desire. The word lust means an over-desire. It's out of control. It's out of bounds. So Jesus is not saying, that the first spark of attraction that you experience equates sexual sin. Many of it, we have all kinds of different attractions that might appear within us. Now, when properly viewed and acted upon is to be appropriately fanned into flame within marriage or restrained or tempered in singleness. When we don't do this, it is a choice. It is a choice. Lust begins with the decision not to direct the spark in the right way by choosing to indulge in what is forbidden, even within the imagination. It is an act of the will. Let me put this very clearly. This is what Jesus is saying. Any and every sexual practice which is immoral in deed is also immoral in thought. Jesus is getting at the heart. Many of the rabbis are saying, well, as long as you didn't actually commit adultery, you're good. Jesus is saying, even if you lust after another woman in your heart, you are guilty. So this levels the playing field. 
and removes any sense of arrogance or pride that one person might have over another. This is an important message for some Christians within the church who tend to point their finger at maybe the culture of the world saying, well, you're a sexual sinner. Like, well, well, my lust is more conservative. So, you know, I'm okay. Like, okay, as if you get five gold stars in heaven for having a more conservative lust. I had a guy once come to me in my church in Hollywood and be like, well, I like women. I was like, yeah, that's the problem. It's plural. <laughs> like, Friends, we are, apart from grace, sexual sinners speaking to sexual sinners. The playing field has been leveled by Jesus. So what is lust? It is disordered desire and the choice to carry it. What does lust do? Well, it ignores what God has said, what God has designed. See, in the act of lust, whether in imagination or action, you are ignoring God's direction and essentially using the person that you are lusting after. They essentially become a sex object. And that is a description of pornography and why it's all condemned as sexual immorality. Now, think about pornography for a moment. Even practically, think about what pornography actually teaches. It teaches you that other men or women function to feed your desire. It trains you to think that way. Pornography also trains you to think every other man or woman should say yes to your sexual desires. Pornography also teaches that sex is for yourself. I might also add what I call emotional pornography to this. Though perhaps not as physically explicit, emotional pornography is the stoking of intimate fantasies with someone that is is not your, your spouse. Like, you know what? It's not a good idea to watch The Notebook 20 times. Stoking these like fantasies, holding on to that, carrying that. It's going away from God's design. That's what lust does. Well, where does it lead? As this state of heart and mind works its way out into daily life, it has all kinds of effects, which is called sexual immorality. And it's condemned throughout Scripture. As Paul the Apostle says in 1 Thessalonians 4, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, 
whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And I want you to notice some of the words specifically that Paul uses, transgress or defraud. It means stepping over the boundaries. It means violating. He also says exploit or wrong, which means using another for your gain. There are three warnings here. One, these things will be judged by God. Two, they are the opposite of the Christian life. And three, to disregard that such actions are sin is to disregard God himself. The topic of lust is weighty because of what it is, where it leads, and what it does. So what does it require? What is Jesus telling us to do with this? He uses here intentional overstatements to make his point. The removal of the eye, the removal of the hand. In other words, sin in general, but here specifically, must be dealt with radically. And yes, it will feel as if you are removing a part of yourself, but it is necessary. J.I. Packer, a wonderful theologian, wrote a book on holiness. And in his teaching on this section, he puts it like this. Jesus told us very vividly that mortifying a sin could well feel like plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand or foot. In other words, self-mutilation. You will feel as if you are saying goodbye to something that is so much a part of you that without it, you cannot live. Both Paul and Jesus assure us that the exercise, however painful, is a necessity for life. And so we must go to it. See, often in my younger years, the excuse that I would give is, well, it comes naturally. It's just a part of, part of who I am. But the Bible assumes that all of us being fallen in sin, of course, sinful things are going to come naturally or a mix of desires are going to come naturally. But where scripture defines something as sin, it must be dealt with radically. So the question is for us all. Are you dealing radically with lust? It, of course, begins in the mind. When the thoughts arise, you're not condemned for that. We might have all kinds of attractions that come within our mind and in our heart, but what do you choose to do with it? Do you own it? Do you allow it to remain? Do you carry it? Do you turn it over and over again in your mind? Dealing radically means saying no in that moment. It also perhaps means that you don't go into certain places or put yourself into certain environments. It certainly involves how you use your screens in the year 2023. But let us also remember, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have phones and lust was still a problem. It begins in the mind and in the heart. But Jesus wouldn't be telling us this if there wasn't also the promise that it is possible. Friends, destructive cycles can be broken. But like breaking an addiction, the beginning is never easy. 
And it always starts with a confession of need. And dealing radically with this is not legalism. Some say, oh, that's a little legalistic. No, these are concrete expressions of your decision to follow Jesus. He could not make it more clear. To use another description, John Stott, this is a quote-heavy sermon, by the way, just deal with it, because I have the microphone. The quotes are coming thick and fast. But I find it helpful, particularly the phrase that John Stott uses when he comments on this passage. It is better to accept some cultural amputation in this world than risk final destruction in the next. Of course, this teaching runs clean counter to modern standards of permissiveness. It is based on the principle that eternity is more important than time and purity than culture and that any sacrifice is worthwhile in this life if it is necessary to ensure our entry into the next. We have to decide quite simply whether to live for this world or the next, whether to follow the crowd or to follow Christ. It is better to enter life maimed than to enter hell whole. Jesus addresses the problem of lust head on. Are we dealing radically with it? We don't want the fire outside of the fireplace. So what is the fireplace? Well, that is where Jesus turns to next. Secondly, the purpose of marriage. According to the Bible, sex is not for consumer use, but here's another word you're not going to hear this week, covenant union. Three words you won't hear, chastity, temperance, and covenant. If you do, send me an email, you'll get a prize. (laughs) The word covenant is not used in casual conversation. What does it mean? A binding agreement a binding commitment that serves as the foundation for the relationship. It is stronger than circumstance and stronger than feeling or desire. So what are the marks of marriage? What are the marks of this covenant relationship? Well, even when you go back to the book of Genesis, at the very beginning, there are several marks that show us the purpose of marriage. In the Garden of Eden, when God created Adam and Eve and performed and presided over the very first wedding ceremony, and they were joined together, three things that we note. First, it's personal. It entails exclusive commitment. To the spouse. The two become one, Genesis says, which not only speaks of the sexual union, but also everything else. You become one in life, you become one economically and socially. So when one gets married, this is the kind of love that you are promising. You're not promising feelings. You don't often hear it at a, a wedding like, I. Deborah, vow to have a certain level of romantic feelings towards you at all times. No, what you're promising is sacrificial love, even when the feelings may not be there. A a different, I suppose, related illustration would be those of you who have children. You have a commitment to your children, despite the fact that your feelings are not always there when they act terribly. And you're like, I 
feel as if I want to leave you in the wilderness right now, but I choose out of sacrificial love and your good to keep you in the home. Like that was a good decision. (laughs) It's personal. Secondly, it's public. This is something a lot of people don't talk about. It's public. God makes this public declaration over them. The first wedding ceremony has social implications. They are united, but it will be for a public purpose. And third, it is permanent. They are no longer two. They are one. It's personal. It's public. It's permanent. I often remind people of these when they say, it's just a piece of paper. But listen, that piece of paper means you recognize not only the significance of marriage between you two, but you also recognize the obligation of your marriage to the world, to society. That's why Jesus addresses the certificate of divorce. Just as someone was given a certificate of marriage, the certificate of divorce was public and intended to protect against the accusations of infidelity. Again, There's a public, personal, and permanent nature to the marriage union. And so, the higher view you have of sexuality and marriage, the more devastating its opposite will be. And so Jesus says in Matthew 5, 31 and 32, as it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. When the question of divorce arises, not only here, but elsewhere in scripture, Jesus always points back to and affirms the purpose of marriage. What we just talked about. Now, in that day, if you read the teachings of the rabbi, you could get a divorce for pretty much any reason. I was refreshing my memory this week and looking over examples from the first century, and there was even one clause where if the wife burned her husband's feet, he could divorce her. And I'm like, I don't know what was happening in that situation. (laughs) But there was a culture of permissiveness an idea that thrives in our culture today, divorce for any reason, falling out of love, incompatibility. Jesus is saying into that culture of permissiveness that there is something that breaks the union, adultery, and that you are not to break the union, but uphold the union, And so this, quote, divorce for whatever reason essentially pushes the woman in this case who remarries into what actually does break a union, sex with someone else. That's what Jesus is saying. So how should we think about divorce? Well, it should be noted that this is not the only section of scripture that deals with this topic. Nor is Matthew summarizing all of that teaching here in Matthew chapter five. In this context, 
Jesus is, again, challenging the complacency around divorce. The question is not, what are all the smallest reasons I can use to get out of this? For this undermines the sacred nature of marriage. So what Jesus is doing here is reasserting the purpose of marriage and disturbing complacency on the issue of divorce. Generally, Christians should not divorce. This is the core teaching of Jesus. However, there are exceptions where divorce is permitted. Concessions as a last resort due to the destructive nature of those in unrepentant sin where reconciliation is not possible. We call these concessions biblical grounds for divorce, which are adultery, as Jesus mentions here, and the case is made for abandonment and abuse in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is teaching on this, he says that divorce was permitted. Why? Because of the hardness of heart. The law made these concessions because of the hardness of heart. Tim and Kathy Keller in their book on marriage talking about this, describe it this way. Sometimes betrayal and cruelty can damage the fabric of a marriage so that its continuance would be a greater, greater evil than divorce. All this is implied by the idea that God, through Moses, granted divorce against his ideal design as a merciful adjustment to our sinful condition. Sometimes a heart becomes so hard that it leads to a continual violation of the marriage vows and that without the prospect of repentance or healing, divorce is permitted. I get emotional as I talk about this because we've walked through many who have experienced this pain. The question naturally arises, what about remarriage? Well, it appears from scripture that if one is divorced on biblical grounds, then they are free to remarry and to do so without shame. And though many of us may have specific questions about certain situations, those are the basic principles. So how should we approach this? How should we approach the matter of marriage and divorce? I believe this is a call to three things. It is a call to counsel. It is a call to courage. And it is a call to compassion. First, this is a call to counsel. 
First and foremost, from scripture. Scripture is our authority in all matters of life and faith. We go to the word of God. It governs our lives. And we take counsel together under the word of God to discern the right application. Secondly, it's a call to courage. Being realistic about how many reasons often given for divorce go against what scripture says. The call to commitment in marriage is weighty. But it is for our good. It is a call to be courageous. But it is also a call to compassion. Being realistic about how this involves real people and real situations, many of which are extremely painful. And it is with a heart full of compassion that we approach these matters. All of this is important, regardless of your stage of life, because it's a description of a whole new way of being human, life in God's kingdom, which is very different than how the world functions, that we might be men and women who reflect the truth and power of Jesus in our lives. And a massive part of this is commitment, which is where we land. Lastly, Jesus teaches the power of integrity. See, all of this teaching is underlined by his teaching on oaths, which is really about character and commitment. Jesus says in verse 33 to 37, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. If the rabbis were being permissive in the area of lust and in other areas, they were also being permissive about their teaching on oaths. Some of the rabbis, their teaching from that period essentially divided oaths into classes, giving valid or invalid oath classes. Oh, well, when he told me this story or what had happened, he swore by Jerusalem. So there's a good chance, 50-50, that he's telling the truth. But he swore by heaven in this case. Then they're really claiming the truth. And Jesus His point is this, your words and your conversations should be so honest that you don't need to swear any oaths. You don't need to add anything. All you need to say, he says in verse 37, is yes and mean it. As one commentator put it, when someone's explaining something to you, the more and more words they use, the more and more suspicious you probably should be. Our commitment should not need crutches. In all of this, 
Jesus is getting at our character. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Be faithful in your commitment. Be people of integrity. Or to put it simply, kingdom people are commitment people. Kingdom people are commitment people. From the area of sexuality all the way to our speech. Committed to God and his good design for us. For our lives to be lived from the inside out. Now, when we understand all these areas and what Jesus is really getting at, who here is innocent? No one. We have all fallen short in these matters. And you may even begin to feel, well, where's the hope? Like I'm a failure. I made wrong decisions. I did this. I sinned in that. We're all of us guilty before God. We've all sinned. And many of us in these areas have been sinned against. And we begin to ask, how can I be confident that God will receive me? I feel like damaged goods or I've damaged goods. How do I know that, that God will embrace me? How can I trust all those promises in the Bible? How do I know that God will forgive me, someone who's been unfaithful in these areas? How does God deal with unfaithfulness as we've all been unfaithful? What's the way back for us? Well, God is holy. He is perfect. He is sinless. And He is not aloof. He knows exactly what it is like to be sinned against. He created us to be in relationship with him, but we've all turned away from him. In fact, shockingly, in the Old Testament, God describes himself as a divorced person. In the Old Testament, God expresses grief that his people, Israel, had turned away from him and worshiped other gods. This was a betrayal. We've all betrayed him. It was, spiritually speaking, adultery. For when God gives himself to us, it is in a binding relationship that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That's why marriage is so important. It reflects God's commitment to us. And yet the people of Israel left him. We have all turned away from him. And God in his grief, experiencing unfaithfulness, he says through the prophet Jeremiah, and I thought after she has done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return. I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Have you dealt with the unfaithfulness of another? God says, I know. I know what that's like. God knows the pain and hurt of unfaithfulness in ways we never could. And yet, how does God respond What then does God do? How does he respond to fallen and unfaithful? He responds by pursuing redemption and making a way back 
for us all. For even though reconciliation may not always be possible with people, listen, friends, it is always possible with God, regardless of what you have done. Why? How? Because Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world and he fulfilled the law on our behalf, where we failed. He paid the penalty that we deserve on the cross, on our behalf. He paid for it all so that we might be forgiven, spared the penalty of the law, and brought into intimate, adopted relationship with him. In all these areas we've been convicted of today, the way back for us all is the cross of Jesus Christ. Yes, you will experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit, making you aware of the wrong that is in your heart or in your life. But we are not to live in condemnation. For in these matters, there are no unforgivable sins. You are not doomed to stay in that place of guilt or shame because Jesus has made a way and he's made a way through what he's done for you, not what you did for him. It's all made possible, not because you're so committed to him, but because he is so committed to you that he went all the way to the cross for you. So hear these words from Romans chapter eight as Christ's wedding vows to you because marriage in this life is but a signpost to a greater reality, the marriage between the church, all those who trust in Jesus and Christ himself. For Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You may feel like damaged goods. Jesus died for you. You may have damaged goods. Jesus died for you.